Hey everyone, it's Chris Herb and welcome to the Triple Clicks Video Game Marketing Podcast. On this episode, I'm joined by famed music DJ and founder of Dash Radio, Scott Keeney, also known by his stage name, DJ Ski. Recorded at the Triple Clicks office, we talked about how Ski got his start in marketing, helping launch the T-Mobile sidekick, his experience making mixtapes for artists like The Game and Kendrick Lamar, his relationship with Prince, and how he earned the moniker The Oprah Winfrey of Hip Hop from Mark Cuban. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Herb, you're a uh, pro. I'm trying, you know, I'm, uh, I'm interviewing a guy who's famous for being a DJ is a little tough for the first, <laughs> first time. So we have joining the podcast today is Scott Keeney, also known as DJ Ski good friend of triple clicks we've been friends for a long time i googled a bunch of stuff and did some background work on you Uh shit that i didn't even know about you to do the introduction let's let's see what's real and what's not rose to fame as a dj discovering new artists kendrick bieber gaga Mm -hmm. uh post forbes 30 under 30 list billboards influential power players 30 under 30 Two-time winner of the Global Spin Awards, yes. DJ Radio DJ of the Year and Mixtape DJ of the Year. You've put out over a hundred mixtapes. Have I really? Over a hundred mixtapes. I tried to download that shit. I couldn't find it. So <laughs> yeah, I gotta get you to make me some mixtapes. Damn, I didn't know it's been that many. That's a lot. Oversee, you work with Ice Cube. Oversee the big threes music, and obviously just launched the station. And the big thing is founder of Dash Radio, which yes. is on mogul levels. So, thank Did you know you. a little about. I know, I'm trying. We're trying. Thank you for joining. Like it's Come super on. good to have you here. We've been working for a few years yeah. together, and it's. I just wanted to get you on here to talk about your passion for marketing and all the other things we'll get through. But uh, thanks just, for coming. Of course, and I just wanted to come up here because you have the coolest offices ever, and I can always come home with goodies and new video game systems <laughs> and games and collabs. So I just come here to stay in touch with uh, what's going on in the culture. You have a five-story <laughs> building. You're building on Hollywood and Vine. So for you to say my office is nice, I appreciate it's that. Cool. I, it's It's the free video game swag that comes along with it. So it's I, both. Yeah, no, I get that. <laughs> So I want to talk about just, you know, I always kick these things off. Uh, where were you born? Where are you from? And, and what did your parents do? Sure. So I was born in New York City, but really grew up in uh, Minneapolis. I, we lo- moved between after New York to Texas to Florida, and uh, my dad finally, finally settled down in uh, Minneapolis. So uh, that's really where I grew up. My dad was a teacher. He, he's done many things. So he, he was started off as a teacher. Then he ended up running a foundation where they were basically archiving stories of the the world's uh, most preeminent, like ancient healers and cultures and documenting them while they still existed. So he had, you know, one of the coolest jobs ever and and now has dedicated his life towards that and towards, I guess, um, sharing the learnings that he's done with that. My mom was actually on radio, ironically enough. Uh, She was a school teacher uh, and has, you know, done done a lot of different things. But yeah, it's funny. My grandmother did radio. Her mom did radio. She did radio. And then I did. So I guess it runs in our blood. Yeah, naturally progression. Is that yeah. how you got into it for the first time? Like when did, mm-hmm. how old were you when you left New York? Um, we left New York when I was young. So we moved to Texas, lived there for a couple of years, Florida for a couple of years. I really, uh, the reason Minneapolis is my hometown is because I went to everything from kindergarten. Basically I, we moved there when I started kindergarten and I was there until I was 17 and left high school early to come to LA. 
I have a, so that's funny. I was born in New York as well. Really? I up, didn't know that. Yeah, upstate New York. Uh, we were there until I was three. We moved to Africa. I lived in Algeria for You're two lying. years. No, You're making this up. You're no, trying to make this sound better than me. Like, no, oh, yeah, you moved to Texas? I moved no, to Algeria. It's, it's a similar story. Because as you were traveling around, my parents taught in, in Africa. So literally moved to Africa and lived there for a little over two and a half years. And then we landed in Seattle. And that was my Minnesota. I, I think crazy. third grade in Seattle through college. So it's Seattle crazy. is my version true. of Minnesota. And you had that. Hold on. You had the coolest job. As a kid, you had the better job than you even have now. Uh, it was a good job. I during uh, end of high school, beginning of college, I was a bat boy for the Mariners. I, I ran the visiting clubhouse for, and the Mariners were the Twins were, of course, my favorite team. But going through the nineties as a Twins fan was tough. After ninety one, of course, which got me into sports. So, I, and my favorite athlete of all time is King Griffey Jr. So I was a huge Seattle fan. Plus, they had the S. It was my initial, my favorite colors in the logo, new logo that they came out with. And baseball was my favorite sport. So the Mariners were, were really, really a close like one A, one B. Uh, yeah, it's people say the Sonics, Kemp, and Peyton, yeah, and that's who I like love them. And so yeah, we we were there at the per, and Pearl Jam, and I was in college for the drop of all that. Man. Seattle felt like a moment. Uh, but yeah, I, I worked for the Mariners from '91, which I think there was like 300 people at the game <laughs> yeah. through the '95 season where we actually made the playoffs that's for the first nice. time ever. So it was I was great. You know, Alex Rodriguez rookie year, like it was crazy that incredible the that came through there. Um, so let's let's get back to music. How. Yep. How did you get into music? What was your connection? Obviously, because of the family mm-hmm. um, doing it. What, what, how old were you when you first got it? What was your first gig? My dad was always a, a piano player and an incredible one at that, still is. So he was always playing nonstop and, you know, had tons of different records and things. My mom was a singer. She was actually up with people that group, believe it or wow. not. Yeah, so yeah. she like, was going to like across to Europe and stuff on tour wow. for that. So it was kind of in my genes, I guess, looking back at it. But for me... Um, the, the moment that clicked for it was I actually, in, in my high school, I went to an inner city school in St. Paul um, called Central High School, and they had a recording program, which was really weird. So I actually took it as an elective um, on audio engineering, and it was that that really like kind of piqued my interest. I always loved music, and before I had like a CD changers and would like DJ by like mixing, changing songs and trying to remix stuff. But this is before YouTube, the internet, before it was easy to do those types of things. So um, I went out and to, after I took that class, I just, I started, I was like, wow, I want to, this is what I want to do. And, um, but I wanted to be more than just an engineer and DJing is what really, you know, piqued my interest. So um, I stole one of my dad's turntables, bought another cheap one at, at Best Buy, took a mixer that he had. And started like because DJing. You're in Minnesota, you had to go to Best Buy. <laughs> yeah, was, exactly. That was the choice. So I had, and I broke it like the first night because it was like a, a belt drive turntable, so not meant for like scratching or doing anything like that. But um, from that moment on, it was like sometimes things happen in your life, and you're just like, "This is like this is me. This is what I'm gonna do." And it, it was that aha moment for me that just worked out. Yeah, that's awesome. Tell, talk a little bit about you when you got. I heard some stories about you in New York chasing shoes for talent, yeah. like Fat Joe. Is yeah. that how? So you started out, <laughs> but crazy. you started to escalate. Like, what? What yeah. really kind of broke you in, in that world? Sure. So I was DJing, but 
it's tough to make your name as a DJ and to, to get known. So the way that in high school I made my money was first it was selling like PlayStation 2s, Xboxes when they first came out because all my friends would work at Target or Best Buy or wherever. I'd slide them 20 bucks to tell me when the shipments were coming in and go buy out the store, sell them all on eBay for double the money like and Gary use Vee. the hustle. <laughs> so that, that was my hustle. So in doing that, of course, that was seasonal. Um, the next thing I moved on to it was always things that I liked. So I was like, oh, I started, you know, I was always up on the internet and technology. Um, um, before most of the mainstream world was. So I was, you know, ordering exclusive Jordans and Air Force Ones from European sites and, and importing them over. Through that, I got connected with uh, a DJ named Stretch Armstrong, iconic legend, mm-hmm. broke, you know, really set the foundation for, for me in terms of me discovering people. He was the one that broke Jay-Z, Biggie, Nas, mm-hmm. Wu-Tang Clan, like everybody. Still a legend to this day. There's a great documentary on him on Showtime right now. But... um. Stretch happened to be meeting with Steve Rifkin, and he he needed a PlayStation for his son, so that's how we connected. And then I started selling Steve shoes, and that's how I, you know, ultimately it was selling those things that got me into L.A. and the entertainment industry and how I had a base even when I got out here to already know people. So it was through those relationships that I built, and through Steve, he connected me with people at his label and then to different artists, and they'd start, like, sharing my contact. It was on the Motorola two-way pagers at the time, so I'd get a two-way from Fat Joe or... You know, his crew, the Terror Squad crew, they're like, yo, we need these Air Force Ones for whatever. I'm like, all right, cool. So you're and breaking your way in because you have yeah. access, not because you're, not in yeah. their minds that you're not getting the credibility for no, the DJ No, they don't care thing. about the DJ. They're like, oh, cool. Like, yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm playing your record in Minneapolis on my station. I ended up on a small station. Uh, you know, there was the only hip hop station at the time was a community station. Uh, and I was doing like a 4 a.m. shift at, you know, Saturday nights. And, but... You know, so that was my love and passion, but this was why, of course, why people were hitting me. I was that access for them to, to getting, you know, whatever it was that was sold out. Like, I just knew how to leverage the internet yeah. and find things. Whatever breaks you. And then when you talk to a lot of entertainers yep. in the in LA, it's always yep. like there's that moment that kind of helped you break through yeah. to get that access. So, yeah, I mean, it's that hustle, uh, especially from a kid from Minnesota who <laughs> yeah. doesn't have the juice, right, to come through. Exactly. Um, how did you um, How did you elevate from the... From being in Minnesota on the on the midnight mm-hmm. to four a.m. shift to, yeah. I mean, it's really your escalation in L.A. And, and yeah, I mean, same you, thing. It's the sh- you're famous for shoes and you're famous for DJ, <laughs> right? The, like the shoe evolution makes sense, right? Like, yeah. fuck, I'm building my brand yeah. off of this stuff, and you're I'm, I'm assuming like myself, like I'm for always sure. proud of my shoe collection until yeah. I'm in a room with you, and then I'm not so proud <laughs> of my shoe collection anymore. But it's like that evolution of your passion for that. And then how do you break out into L.A. and get onto KISS and, and those things? Sure. So it's interesting. So when I came to L.A., it was to I wrote a proposal to Steve after I was selling him PlayStation and shoes on what I thought he was doing wrong with his label. And at the time, he just had his biggest quarter ever. Uh, you know, he did $300 million in, in billing and sales. And he's like, who's this kid that's telling me that? But it was all really digitally and internet focused. And he had no idea what even email was and things. So he was like, hey, come meet with me. So, so I flew to New York, ditched high school a day met with him. Um, it was funny. Actually, the first meeting was canceled. He canceled on me after mm. I showed up. He's like, oh, I got an emergency meeting. So I was like heartbroken as a kid. Like I left my day, but the real a lot of people, right yeah. And yeah. a lot of people would like given up, but I was, I just stayed on him and didn't mm-hmm. take it personal. Like at first I was like, damn, like really? Like I came this, but then you realize like, wait, I'm just a little kid. Like yeah. he's running what, that. What you gave up to get there versus. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So ended up meeting with him and two weeks later doing the same thing and it worked out and he offered me a job. So Figured way to graduate high school early. Came out to LA to work for him and, and launch his new company, SRC, as his um, deal ended with Sony. Uh, and he also had a marketing agency and pioneered 
guerrilla and street team marketing. So it was a blessing because I was able to really work on the industry side and the business side and, and learn that side. Um, before my artist career took off, I was still DJing at the time, but I was out here working for that. And I just kept networking and building with others. I remember the first person I met in LA was Ben Baller because I was selling shoes and it was when the first SB Dunks came out. Um, and what happened? He was, he'd like bought a monopoly in, on all these stores and, and gotten and bought them all. And I bought the other ones that were there. Mm-hmm. So we ended up like trading, col- you know, colored ways and different things. And this is before the sneaker game really took off. I mean, Nike talk is where, you know, that was the epicenter of sneaker culture and just where everything happened. And where and was Ben at that point? Was he, was ben he was Ben Baller DJ. yet? Yeah, he was a bit, I remember he met me and Ben's a character. So he's like, don't, you can't tell anybody who I am. It's Ben Baller. <laughs> Based off his screen. And I'm like, ben, all right, uh, <laughs> all right, Ben, <laughs> Ben's a character, but we became friends and, uh, clicked from there. And I, I just built up a, uh, I, I guess a, a network of industry talent of top, like executives, of course, artists where I was hooking them up with different shoes and products. And, for me, where I really got known in the industry was the first uh, the first client that I had at SRC that I'd landed myself was T-Mobile with the Sidekick, that, yeah, and it was actually called the, the Hip Top. So at the time, the Sidekick was really the first consumer smartphone. The business world had Blackberries. The iPhone wasn't even thought. This was kind of the foundation for that. But everybody just had, had flip one. phones. I, I loved that. Sidekick was the best device ever. And... So it was, I realized the potential that that product had, but also realized we needed to get it in the right hands to, to go out and I guess, you know, get everybody aware of it. Right. So it's, it's, it's the same thing that you do. It's finding ways to take products and get the message out there through, you know, innovative marketing campaigns. And for us, product placement was still in its infancy and early days Mm -hmm. and they did not have very big budgets. It was a new startup call by a company that Andy Rubin started who went on to start Android called, uh, what was it? It was called Danger. The original product was called the Hip Top before they changed the name to the Sidekick. And I literally unsolicited wrote, found the name of their marketing VP, overnighted a a letter that, you know, to get their attention on through FedEx and, she sent me an email like, hey, um, I have my marketing director in LA next week. Can you meet? So pitch them a campaign. Didn't take much. They didn't have huge budgets at the time. And I was like, watch what we can do just through my network of yeah. giving it to people because I knew people would react to it. So I went out and was the person in the industry that was seeding it to, to every celebrity, giving away, you know, it was my job to kind of orchestrate a limited amount of devices and to decide who got what. And, and, and you know, I'd barter in exchange. Hey, She's if you that shoe knowledge of the limited yeah. edition. You just apply 100%. it to percent. And we yeah. did the same thing. And then it ended up to me like literally running the entire campaign. So I'd be flying up to, to Bellevue up next to Seattle and developing price points. We were the first to have unlimited text messages because I was like, this is what mm-hmm. you need to do. These are the price points for the phone and creating limited edition devices from LRG, Mr. Cartoon, uh, Juicy Couture for females. Giving, I remember giving Dwayne Wade his first sidekick. He went on to have his own then. Every cele- like literally everybody. I remember we sent some to, to Jay-Z and... Had Jay was so big that he would just get one because he's Jay. Sure. A lot everybody else would be like, "Hey, are you going to put this in a video?" And we'd negotiate how many devices and how long a free service for how much time they'd put in for it. Jay is just a guy you'd give it to. Had no expectations, and I remember sitting in the office one day, and the, the commercial came up for his song with Beyonce, actually for Bonnie and Clyde. There was a commercial that was going to premiere on MTV, and the commercial was him driving. They were driving in a convertible, and he pulled out a Sidekick. 
And like, that's the first time we saw it. Yeah. We're like, wow. And then he used it. It's in the quality. Like that's what drives it is like the, the pr- if you fall in love with the cl- product, you don't need to pay for the place. hundred percent. And then he ended up using it in that video. And the, and then the real big one was the excuse me, miss video. And after that, I mean, we had, a we, it was, it's a combination as you know, better than anybody else of brewing at the ground level and mm-hmm. getting like the right influencers. And then one person can really take it over the top, but you, you're able to get that person and and even supported, it's not just getting the one. If it was just Jay, it still might not have worked out, but it was all these other people. And then Jay like stamped it. And then from there on, it was the biggest yeah. thing in the history Get of the, the world. Get the co-sign from him and then it's yeah. legit, right? And I think that's, we, you know, we saw Jimmy Iovine yeah. do the same thing with headphones, right? But and it's, it was seeding it to everybody, but then you get the, the big, big ones yeah. and that, and they really like legitimize it. So it's, you had, you can't ignore any element of that cycle. You have to, to do it everywhere. Yeah. The, and the younger people can't show up with a different brand if Jay shows up with yeah, a side sure. right at the time. So. For sure. And that was totally organic. We didn't even know it was going to be in the video. I just sent them to his office. I didn't even yeah. know if he ever got them. So. Yeah. And then, that evolves into Daimler Chrysler. You, I mean, <laughs> yeah. so like you're mo- you're you're on the mogul game at the beginning yeah. before the talent, before yeah. you really kind of step into the celebrity piece that that yeah. drove that stuff. Which is, I mean, which makes a ton of sense now that we look at kind of where you are with Dash Radio and yeah. the business side of sure. where you're pivoting to. Um, I mean, so ta- that, that foundation really gave me like I, w- I was able to understand the industry and what ROIs meant and stuff instead of just approaching it from a talent perspective. Like, hey, pay me a million dollars and I'll shout you out. Like, no, here's what brands are going to get. Here's what they want here's yeah. how to work with them and interact with them it, it's so fascinating that when you get access to do things when you're younger i i had the same thing with the mariners i mm-hmm. ran the visiting clubhouse literally managed all those players and so for the <laughs> next i i go on to run yeah you know the marketing for ea sports for 10 years and like athletes and celebrities it doesn't none of that yeah. matters to me i've been there before yeah, like for sure what do we what's the business side of, yep. of how this works out so it's 100 it, you know getting that early access you don't get paid for it and you know you know no, but it's all, all about that nothing. experience and and, and growing up and for me it was that network like that was more like i had every artist calling and begging me to get the product like when we came out with the color sidekick or the sidekick too like i'd have to decide who got the first ones and doing that early so was able to really build these good strong relationships and, and do cool things and a lot of those relationships are the ones that i still have to to this day so how did the how did the how did the dj how did the talent mm-hmm. side come out of that where where did when you're you're working with him you're working yeah. with steve you're, yeah. you're doing the sidekicks you're doing the daimler chrysler kind of deals yeah. launching cars how did you how'd you get into the on, onto the talent side so i was always interfacing with talent just through the marketing stuff and djing was still like my passion and what i always did i was still doing events and trying to do my own like little mixtapes and slowly building a name i ended up i think like at one point i was doing mixes on sirius when it first launched so i was at satellite radio and it's infancy when we had like no listeners, which is great to, great to understand and helped, mm-hmm. you know, to the knowledge when we built Dash. But um, for me, we'd worked with a ton of new artists. And one guy that I'd met early on was this kid game that they introduced me to him before, like right after he signed to Dre, before anybody knew who he was. And I just instantly knew he was going to be a, a star from that moment. And this is before G-Unit or anything else. And we'd actually done a lot of, of work with the Violator guys in 50 and putting like the sidekick and via, and you know, at the time, then we went on to, to land Daimler Chrysler and relaunch the 300, the Magnum, the Chargers, kind of their make their car, their brand cool again in the early mid 2000s. So it worked a lot with them. And uh, the the real turning point for my DJ career is when I produced 300 bars. So it came about. I'd known Game for forever. I'd known Fifty for a long time too. And he was he and Fifty had just gone through this beef, had this peace conference. We were doing a lot of things together, and. 
he played me, my studio and office was on Melrose and I'd built a little recording studio in there where I was like doing my like serious show and things and, and trying to make it as a DJ while I ran uh, the marketing agency. And he was happened to be, I think it was it, what was he had it? Ed Hardy or something across the street. And <laughs> he, I ran into him. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm, I was like, oh, are you guys good? You and 50? He's like, no, no, I'm coming out dissing him. And he played me, he gave me a CD at the time of a song that was, a, you know, first three minutes of 300 bars, of him dissing 50. But it was all over one beat, the same KRS-One, uh, BDP, um, Love's Gonna Get You beat. And he played, and I was like, I went back and heard it. I was like, this is dope, but the beat's very repetitive. I'm like, you expect people to listen to this for 15 minutes? Like, <laughs> they're going to fall asleep. So I went in my studio unsolicited and like, I was like, hey, I've got an idea. Check your email in 30 minutes. And just did like producing, mixing some beats together and sent it to him. I was like, hey, you should record something like this. Just as like an idea as like yeah. a friend. I didn't have any expectations. And then all of a sudden my phone rings and Sam, he's like, I'm on my way. We're going to record it right now. I'm like, all right, where? He's like, it's your place. I'm coming right now. I was like, oh, all right. And... In that like 24 hours, we locked ourselves in for like 24 to 40 hours straight, literally, and did, you know, it's become one of the biggest diss records in hip hop history, mm-hmm. 15 minutes long going at the king at the time, 50. And uh, that was what put me on the, on the map after that came out. And I didn't really realize it at the time. And then I realized, and I didn't even know he was going to put like name on it. I was just trying to help out and be mm-hmm. cool and like, oh, cool. I'm a part of these cool things. When and, I Googled your hundred mixtapes, there's a lot of yeah. game in there. Yeah, exactly. And that's what started out. So that was my crack in the door. And, and being a DJ, you only get a few opportunities to really kind of get your name out there, right? Mm-hmm. So, and I realized as soon as that happened, and this is kind of one of the key messages that I think you'll understand, like, I guess success is a mix of preparation, luck, and, and timing. And you have to, one of the key things is identifying those times. If I didn't take advantage of that situation mm-hmm. right there to then focus on my DJ career, I sold my agency after that. And I was like, hey, I want to be a DJ. This is like my world. This is my time. You never know when those things are going to happen. And it's a very short window. So I did, then decided to focus my time on DJing and then went on to produce all of his stuff and expanded from there to, to everything else. Sure. So. You're mixing, you're, and I, I couldn't agree more on taking advantage of that time. I mean, and I think you that's, never know when those, like they happen, they, it could happen for you to anybody out there listening today. You have to recognize it and be willing to jump off that bridge. Like right. I had an agency in Seoul and I was like, look, if I want to make it as a DJ, this could be my only shot. Yeah. So I had a similar, when I, I was working at the time, Wizards of the Coast, mm-hmm. I was literally running uh, Pokemon and all those things. And a, a good friend of mine who worked there, Tom Getty, had left two years earlier. Um, I'd, I love Tom. We had worked together for a long time. He went to EA Sports, and that was like a really yeah. big deal. I was like, oh, God, someday I want to do something like that. And I remember it was December 16th or 17th, Tom, mm-hmm. Tom could tell me the the day I had an extra, bo- I sent my clients at Wizards boxes of chocolate. Mm-hmm. Had an extra box of chocolate, and I was like, "Oh fuck, I'll just I'm gonna send it to Tom." Catch up. Literally said, "Hey, what's your address? I'm, I'm gonna send you. I got an extra thing I want to send you for Christmas." He's like, "Send me a resume." That was his response. I'm like, "What's up?" And he's like, "We've actually been interviewing for the head of Madden for That's six awesome. months. Haven't found anybody. Send me a resume real quick." Um, so I was like, cool, instead of a box of chocolate, here's my resume. I was like December 17th, his boss, uh, Tom Getty, literally mm-hmm. Tom's boss, Todd Citron hit me up and was like, Hey, can you be down here December 26th? And I, <laughs> like, I was Christ, like, Christmas. Yeah. I'm like, literally you want me to fly on Christmas? So I, I hit Tom. I'm like, he, he, he wants me down there 26. He's like, all right, hold on. He's like, I won't make you fly the 26th. Let's come to like January 2nd. I flew down. That's I awesome. interviewed, I got the job at EA sports like December 
I mean, January 15th or something like that. So within a month period of just literally take, like I did a random thing. Uh, I instantly, like I'm in Seattle. I fly to Florida. I have to literally like, where the fuck is Florida? Like I'm Googling (laughs) like US map. Like I can't remember where Florida Florida, is. Miami, Orlando? Yeah. Yeah. And that was a good question too. So yeah, I took that shot. I moved my, you know, I married. You got to do it. Moved my wife to Florida, which neither of us have ever been to the East Coast. Like (laughs) I'm from New York, but that was it. Yep. Um, So yeah, I mean, I've. Taking that, taking you that moment, or having that option is, and you got to realize when it's there too. And like, look, you got to realize too, it might not work, but you've got it. Like, look, if you really want something bad enough, like those things are few and far between. If I hadn't jumped on that opportunity, who knows if that that would have ever happened to me as a DJ? If I hadn't, if I hadn't moved to Florida, I don't think I don't know if I would have ever left Seattle. I would have yeah. been that guy that grows up next to your high school, which is there's nothing wrong with that. But like, if you're not pushed to go, hundred percent, it's you know, it, it changes everything. Yeah. So. Um, so tell me about Ski TV. So Ski TV then I you get, you get yeah. to kiss. You're you're crushing it. You're you know I do want to hear about uh, you. You did Kendrick's first mixtape. Yeah. So coming so, off of that, sure. So after so in meeting with Game is actually around the time we did Games. It was one of his first two mixtapes. Um, some of his street homies had this artist J Rock, the TDE guy. So that's when I met Top Dog and the whole TDE camp. And they brought in. I remember the first time Game met Kendrick too. He's a 16 years old kid. 16 year old kid. They brought him to my studio on, on Melrose, the same one that we did 300 bars. And I remember they brought in this kid and like, oh, let us play him for you and let's check him out. I was like, all right, let, let's hear him. He started rapping, rapping for 15 minutes, just freestyling. My reaction to him was like, he's incredible. One of the best rappers I've ever seen. The challenge is now, can he actually make a song or an album? Of course, he's, he's answered that and gone sure. on to do that. But uh, at the time, I mean, he, had, he didn't know just how to talent. do just raw talent, but like super rough was not... Like at the time, there was like freestyle rappers, and there's a lot of people that can rap great and go in front of you. And he was going off the top and off the dome, and like he talk about everything that's like he sees in front of him. So genius level, but that doesn't mean that you can make a song or an album. And that's why for Kendrick, like it wasn't uh, quick, and he ended up getting signed to Def Jam early on. I don't know if a lot of people know that. Um, we put together his first mixtape, his first ever performance. I just found the footage of it. I have it. I got to figure out what to do with it or how to release it. Mm. Is when. Um, I had my own kind of car show. It was almost like ComplexCon before that. It was called the MV Expo where we had cars, shoes, jewelry, technology, <laughs> ben performances. Ben yeah, Ben was there. Yeah, ben course. was a big part Using of it. Using your list. Exactly. <laughs> of course. So that was the first time Kendrick ever performed. So um, we still have that footage, which is, which is crazy. And from that, I realized after I started, my DJ career started taking off, I I'd started producing, of course, producing all of games things. But I also realized like, hey, I need to work with everybody. I don't want to be just known as like games guy, mm-hmm. even though that was my, my intro. And, you know, but for anybody to expand, you can't just be tied into to one person. So you can't be a one trick pony because... <laughs> Like it's just, it's not a good thing for a lot of reasons. A, you're dependent on others. B, it doesn't like you look like you're just following the coattails of them. And C, it's, you're not as valuable if you're just part of them. If you're like the bigger I got, the the more helpful it was to to game. So, um, I started producing all the stuff with Snoop and all the West coast guys, Kendrick, J-Rock, Crooked Eye. Uh, I mean, you go back so, so many people. And, um, after my DJ career started taking off, I was on Sirius still doing my show. I was actually at Power 106 at the time and before I moved to Kiss. And I was I saw YouTube had launched and I saw there being this huge opportunity for bite-sized content. I, I knew it was there. I didn't know what the business specifically was. I was like, this is the future of, of something. Something feels right here. We need to get involved. No idea how it's going to turn out. Let's just try it and see where it goes. 
So I had my assistant at the time, you know, we went out to Best Buy and bought like a a digital camera, like a video (laughs) camera. And we're like, we're going to, and I got together like a few friends that I'd worked with. We're just going to start a daily vlog, in essence, vlog before vlogs even existed of just putting up a new show every single day. And there would be no guidelines for that show. So it wasn't like, hey, today is music, tomorrow's sneakers. It was just whatever. So one day would be, you know, getting in a new Xbox system or reviewing a game. The other would be on the road with Chris Cornell in South America. The other would be, you know, getting a, you know, exclusive access to the biggest sneaker collection in the world or showcasing, you know, whatever shoes are about to come out before All-Star Weekend. And that turned into, you know, ultimately a production house where we had 11 number one music videos and kind of revolutionized the music video industry by shooting on Canons and 5Ds and, mm-hmm. you know, everybody, you know, Jimmy Iovine gave us 25,000. We delivered him three videos when he was spending 250 on each individual video and fell in love with us. And the Interscope guys tried to buy us. Um, we then ended up... Uh, after the, we almost created a Vivo before Vivo, where we were utilizing music videos to draw our audience before like any anything existed and creating these huge numbers. And then after Vivo came out, we didn't really want to be in the music business video and music video business anymore because we were in it again, kind of as a lost leader to drive traffic to us. And they started taking that. And Mark Cuban emailed me and was like, "Hey, what do you th- have you ever thought about doing a TV show?" So it's like. Yeah, of course. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I don't know. So literally that night wrote a proposal treatment idea, sent it to him. And he was like, cool, let's go. So, so. that's that's the, he, yeah. I've got interviews and I hold this over your head. I've got Mark yeah. Cuban calling you the Oprah of <laughs> hip hop music that I'm going to. Yeah, that was awesome. On Jay Leno, nonetheless, that was great. On shout, to, shout to Mark. For sure. Um, and so it all just kind of builds out of there. How many how many seasons or how many episodes did you do of that? So many episodes. We did five seasons on TV. We started our first two on first two or three on Access, which is Mark's network, mm-hmm. and then got a bigger opportunity. And he gave me the blessing to go over to Fuse. And then from that, after that, like Dash became my main focus. So I didn't want to spend my time sure. just because it's so much work and effort. You will see us bringing video back in a big way in the very near future. Talk about that. Yes, uh, for sure. I mean, video is going to be a huge component of what you see with us doing at Dash, even though our initial focus has been been audio. But um, I realized, too, to launch Dash, it was the perfect intersection of everything that I've done from radio, obviously, music, tech, industry, new new media, technology. Like It was the, the perfect centerpiece to, to everything that I was there. And I realized, like, look, it's such a big opportunity. I had to put all my focus on that. So talk about Dash. For, for people who don't, I, obviously, as a big fan, obviously, yeah. we're partners on stuff. Um, t- w- tell people what's the what's the elevator pitch on Dash. What sure. is Dash and why is why is it different? So we're not Spotify. We're not Apple. The easiest way to think of Dash, like, look from super high level, we've basically created something close to Sirius and an app for free. So we have eighty stations, except we power the top ca- talent and curators in the world to go over the top with radio and with audio. We provide the back end, the licensing, the distribution network. We're in almost every vehicle, smart speakers, Pluto TV, anywhere you consume audio. And what we're trying to own is the lean back audio space where Spotify, Apple streaming services are not competition. Those are lean in. It's almost, those are guys at the evolution of CD. We're trying to be the evolution of FM and, and satellite as that moves to digital as connected cars take over as smart speakers and home speakers take over. And one of the big challenges you see with music and all audio today, including podcasts is discovery is so tough. There's mm-hmm. so many options. It's very cumbersome. What we do is empower the best. We basically curate the curators and empower the best curators to go over the top. So you as a fan all for free all without traditional commercials just click on a station if you want to hear hip-hop if you want to hear basketball talk if you want to hear k-pop we have leaders in all of those different sectors you click play and it's served on a platter to you and that's always been my before we got together i I would always i'd have my apple 
Apple Music, yeah. and I'm like, man, I don't have anything too to listen choices. to. Yeah, there's too just so much choices. there, and I, I like what's yeah. flipping back and forth between yeah. songs. And I'm was never a big Pandora yeah. fan. I mean, I super yeah. respect for the space, but I just never kind I of got, got into that yeah, curating not, all that stuff. So yeah. Dash to me always felt like such a clean place that it's it's literally built like like radio because I yeah, was serious. it's ev- evolution of it. Yeah, and I what I find different is really how. The cure, it's the talent that curates mm-hmm. it. Like, you work with everybody from Snoop to Kylie Jenner to Lil Wayne. You've got Oscar De La Hoya, Golden Boy yeah. Channel. Like, how does how does the talent work? How do you work with the, the it's, relationships it's on that? It's great. Stuff? I mean, again, it's leveraging the knowledge and the industry relationships I've built over all this time. And we really built this to, I built this as a DJ first, being on the biggest radio station in the country, helping launch the iHeart brand, being at Sirius for 10 years, and and seeing where the opportunities lied for, for the future. And we really set out to take what's worked for radio from 100 years, but also not be limited to the confines that analog and, and even satellite radio are just by, by nature of cost and distribution and ecosystems. And we really went out to, to create something that is useful for talent. And the reason we've attracted all them, we haven't paid them money. Like that's, that's not our model. We'll do a rev split as we, you know, start getting branded and sponsored stations mm-hmm. that we split with them. But we were very clear to everybody and our, some of our biggest talents approached us. We didn't even approach them. They wanted to be a part of it. Um, we've given them this new platform to use audio as a medium to communicate and interact with their fans. 24-7, 365. We have all the licensing distribution rights. There's no other platform that they can do what they do uh, on Dash with. So when Kylie does it, she feels like she that's this is her channel, her platform. Yeah. It's pure ownership. That's yeah. why you DJ the the makeup pop-ups, you do all that stuff. Yep. It, it's like the talent kind of owned, which is a really 100%. different platform than than iHeartRadio and everything else. 100%. Instead of and, and look, the challenge with, with the big traditional radio is that it's so expensive. You're spending hundreds of millions of dollars if you want to launch a new station in LA, and that only covers 50 square mile radius. So of course you have to bleed a rock dry and put 25 minutes of advertising an hour and play the same 10 songs over and over because you're trying to cast the widest net. We're not burdened by these legacy infrastructures and ecosystems, we can go out and really create something that is heavily targeted and focused and not worrying about what the the individual rating is on that station. We want people on the platform and to give them the best content in every category. And it also reaches a lot further instead of just a small geographic area. And you know what traditional radio has done is they basically created one station and syndicated across the country. So even though you end up with an app that has tens of thousands of stations, it's, which is A, too many choices, radio works because mm-hmm. it's simple and, and not that many, it's really the same 10 stations over and over. Sure. It's clones of the same one in every market that syndicate the same programs, and we're not about that. We want to cover every vertical and sector and empower the top talent to go over the top with radio, the same way that YouTube has empowered them with videos, except we want to help create that content with them so the quality is of the top, top, top tier. So from a you know being the business po- podcast, I, I'm a user. I download the – I literally download – Dash Radio, you're not going to ask me for any of my info. I just jump right in and listen to it. There's also no com- commercials on there. Your distribution network is phenomenal. What are the stats? Give me give me the top line stats of how many people are listening. What's the average time? Over 10 million a month now. People are listening You know, for an average of almost 40 minutes a session right now, which is crazy. I mean, terrestrial radio is like six minutes. So um, it's it, And even if you look in some of the vehicle platforms, like we're the number one performing app and one of the major ones. and Number one app above yeah, maps, above right? Maps. It's insane. And we didn't think we'd be like, we, we knew we'd if you put us next to like our competition and an mm-hmm. audio, we'd win. But when you start seeing the usage of that, but it makes sense. People listen to the, that's the number one thing they do sure. in vehicles. And that's why cars have been so important for us. And such a, a huge focus is because 
again, that's a very lean back experience. Everybody listens to radio and cars because it's free, it's thoughtless, it's built in. You don't have to connect and make a playlist. And again, Spotify and Apple, great. I use Spotify personally. If I want to hear a specific artist or song, that's what, you know, I still use that with Dash. We're not trying to own 100% of listening time. We're trying to own that discovery mechanism and replace the, the time that people spend with rest, traditional radio today. So how do you, so how do brands get involved or how do you, what's, what's the play for you eventually? Yeah. Cause you're going to bring it, you, you know, you don't want the traditional yeah. ad, ad revenue unit. How, what's the money? Your board of directors is crazy. You've got a lot yeah. of really smart people and you yeah, know, you can bad. share some of those names who, yeah. who's on the board, but like where, where, where's the future? Where do you want to take this? Sure. So for us, we want to always keep our listeners first, right? Like we go and Everything that we work through, we, we keep them in mind because if we don't, somebody else is going to. It's a digital era right now. So those old kind of moats that people built with radio, is the, it was so expensive to get into and you could buy one station. Like there's no way anybody's really going to come after you. So you kind of had free reign to do whatever and you could force you know advertising and things down people's throats. In a digital environment, it's different. They'll close an app, they'll find something else, somebody else will figure it out. So what we did is we realized that, hey, instead of trying to put in like a CPM model, which we're not a huge fans of, and you know, there's nothing worse than listening to another like digital radio service and the song fades out, then a loud, obnoxious 30-second ad pops up for something that you have no interest in. And if you're doing that at a party, not only does it not work, like somebody runs to try to disconnect it or pull the aux cord out, what we really are focused on is working with brands and taking the experience that I've built up over my career um, to create what we call like these branded native content stations where people will lean in for it and we'll promote it and we obviously have the audience and stuff to, to kind of market it directly through our channels. But we want to give them a new opportunity to create IP and to go out and create an experience that they can engage with their audience 24-7 and that their audience actually goes out of their way to tune in for because it's creating mm. this living, breathing relationship. So you'll see us doing branded pop-up stations, stations with different brands, or even spot brand sponsoring individual stations that we have with top talent and wanting to associate themselves with it. So it's our thing is that like, look, consumers aren't dumb. We're not trying to trick them and under not market to them. People are fine being marketed to as long as, it doesn't, as long as it's organic and it doesn't interrupt the audio experience. Meaning that like, hey, this is Chris Herb, blah, blah, blah. You're listening to this podcast uh, or this radio show on Dash Radio. Or shout out to, uh, you know, Sour Patch Kids. I'm just looking at what's in, in yeah. front of me right now. Like if you talk about it natively as part of a transition, people are fine with it. And it's actually much, much more effective in the sure. long run. So for us, it's, it's really branded native audio content. And if you're a brand, I'm just trying to think through this. If you're yeah. a brand and you own kind of almost like your you like your social like your social platforms, right? If you if you're a brand and you're big enough to grow your social platform, there's the, you're connecting with consumers now. People want to come to you to connect with them. If you're a brand and you're building a big enough audio station, can can they mon- There's ways to find monet ways yeah, to monetize that. For sure. Right? So for them, for for brands, it's now not just an opportunity. We're not just coming to brands and saying, "Hey, pay us and we'll do these cool things." We're like, "Hey, let's be partners. Let's create this new form of IP and leverage." the audience that these brands have. What a lot of brands don't realize is they have very unique and distinct voices that are credible in the space. Sure. And there is value to that outside of the product that they're selling. We're going to empower them with audio. We have all the music licensing rights, all the distribution. Sure. We'll give you distribution whether you want to put it in your app, on your website, wherever you want to do things through. If you want to play it in your store, we'll come in and cover that for you. And we'll be your partners in creating this new form of IP that can be not only something that they're paying for today, but something that they can monetize through events, through festivals, through through video, through even, you know, in, in not, of course, like selling their own traditional products and things through yeah. that, but then going to others. And if you have, if brands with us build a true audience for that, 
artists are going to come because artists want to get heard and exposed to it. And you will have a huge, huge opportunity to, to kind of build your brand in the space and, and, you know, actually turn it into something that you can make money with. Super interesting because I, I feel like now everybody's a content creator, right? All the kids are doing it. Everybody's a content creator, but the, I don't see brands falling into that yet. They will, right? All brands are going to be content creators. And so this feels like a platform for them to use. For sure. And they they don't realize it. And radio and audio is the the cheapest form of content to create. I mean, we can fill 24 seven, (laughs) you know, when you're looking at a radio station, it's live. 365 days a year, all day, every day. Video content's expensive and you need to write lights and to pilot all these shows. With radio, you plan get a lot of it with music and programming and different DJs and people selecting it. So it's the most efficient way to create a lot of content that people will come in and create engagement for. So even if you're a brand and you have an app, we can put radio in that app for you. So it's going to get people to tune in, not just when they want to come buy your product, but they're going to tune in every day to see what's going on and really build these long lasting relationships with, with your audience. So that's the, mo- that's the mobile mogul side that's of the where, side, where yeah. you're going with that. I mean, yeah, I think exactly. it's amazing. Like I think that's how we got connected was through, you know, kind of what you've been doing with dash. Obviously mm-hmm. I want to talk about gaming before, before you go, you're, I'm embarrassed by some of the numbers that you've put up on your gamer score on a few of those games, especially the Ubisoft shooters like <laughs> that you're, uh, you're diving into pretty head first. I think the first thing that I kind of really found uh, we discovered was uh, you remixing the soundtrack to Halo 4. That was awesome. Um, I think we got connected through Aaron Greenberg. That's right. Originally. Shout out to Aaron and those guys. So and and right. that, was, that was an awesome opportunity. I mean, Halo was the fr- when I was selling Xboxes, it was the first game out and that was the first game that I played on Xbox and so it's been with me since, you know, and actually I think the original Xbox came out on my birthday, November 15th, 2001. So, mm. um, always have had ties for that. So for it to come full circle is just awesome. That's awesome. So you, you worked on that, played with that. We did the collab with, uh, undefeated. Yes. The following year. That's so so we did triple clicks. We, we did a partnership with James Bond and collabed that. on. You guys always do the coolest stuff. Uh, we try Halo five collab with undefeated, mm-hmm. which was cool because it was really the first time we kind of got undefeated to play within the gaming space yeah, yeah. because it was kind of, you know, a lot of people had been chasing that it was unique. And I think we did the, the, the and, stuff out there. And it was something that made sense in all these worlds. And what people don't realize is that like, and now obviously it's starting to come mainstream, but everybody treated like video games is like, Oh, it's just nerds. Like what's going on? Like, no, it's every athlete, every celebrity, every artist, every kid. Yeah. And now you're seeing, you know, marshmallows performance in Fortnite be more talked about and more impactful than the Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. Correct. I mean, it's, it's crazy. That's our, that's kind of our gig when we, when we work with brands is, you know, we get invited to meetings now because of esports. like 10 years ago when I was doing Madden, I'd have to go to Doritos and sit in Dallas for two weeks trying to convince them of why they should do (laughs) a video game promotion, right? Why, why should we let you guys give away the cover of Madden and kind of begging them to do stuff with us? And now Every brand wants to do something in gaming. Yeah. They can't really figure it out. So and a lot e-sports... of them just aren't, aren't knowledgeable enough, yeah, right? Like totally. they just hear buzzwords and stuff, and they, they don't understand the space. And that's yeah, when you guys a... play like, hey, this is what's real. This is what's not. What's yeah, cool. gaming is a tough. Gaming's the, that's the thing I find interesting is you if you're a, if you're a brand and you want to be in a movie, it's you know the studio yeah. will take your call and you can get in there. You know if you call Fortnite. And not <laughs> call, luck, they're right? not calling you back, right? <laughs> yeah. It's three hundred fifty million dollars a month. Like yeah. you think that they care anything yeah. about that. So it's a tough 
place to crack. And, and you have to be, and again, it's the core of everything that we've talked about. Like even with my career with music, it took, it has to be authentic. Like you're communicating to a young generation. So it's all about authenticity and transparency in this day and age is more important than ever. That, that was, I think that's the, the thing that we really look at is, you know, instead of, do you want to market to gamers or do you want to build a relationship with these kids? Yeah. And it's really about that content and the hookup yeah. and, and, and that's the natural organic way of like sponsoring esports is great. If, if it's about brand awareness and going or, after that, for example, like I have the, the Taco Bell X, Xbox and every time I turn it on, I want a damn taco because I hear that dong. So yeah. like those things like legitimately work and are really cool. Uh, yeah, and it's like uh, my head hurts thinking of how hard that was to get the bell under that. But Xbox that's but it's one of the coolest things ever. Not only from like yes, I, I feel like a taco every time, but it's something that I show off because it's different than the traditional Xbox sound. So like, I, for me as like a fan, I'm like, oh, this is the, this is something that I want to go out of my way and show off. And I'm so I then become an advocate for for the brand. Yeah, and that's shout out to Taco Bell who we're friends with, and I have Will on the. Uh, upcoming podcast. Oh, it's, nice. it's interesting that they've been doing it forever. So the credit for them for the evolution. Yeah. So that was this year's. We're working on next year's and like topping the bell. Like we it's always so got to awesome. evolve. So it's uh, yeah, it's we're, a tough challenge. Yeah, I'm glad I don't have to deal. Find yeah, something else because I would have quit then. Yeah, it's a fun. Yeah, it's definitely the high mark. Like the numbers that happened on that one was crazy. So, um, what do you plan now? What's um, what's in your a lot of Fortnite. I got the the new Apex Legends stuff, so I've been trying to figure that one out a little bit. Still FIFA. I'm obsessed with FIFA, so I'm always mm-hmm. like FIFA to me. Even though football, baseball, basketball are my favorite sports, I think my favorite sport to video game is is FIFA without question. Um, so I mean, I, I get into games and I'll like end up, even though I have so many of them, I'll get into cycles and just play the same one or two over and over. So for me, right now, my rotation is Fortnite, little Apex because it just came out, and uh, FIFA. What about Rainbow Six? Because that's the one I'm giving I you the was, business on. I know, right? Your I Rainbow haven't played Six Rainbow numbers. Six in a while. It was cra- for a while. It was insane. I was proud of my numbers until I saw <laughs> you logged on in your office one day, and I was like, I loved you, it. Yeah. "You spent five times more time on Rainbow Six Way than I much. have. Like, Way too much. It's my getaway. Numbers. It's like my getaway. Like games are like a, a, a almost like meditation, right? Like you're in isolated in a wor- world that you're not distracted. And for me, my brain is always running a million miles a minute. So by playing a game, especially as intense like that, like you really have to hone in and focus. So mm-hmm. they're great like almost meditation tools <laughs> even though like you're in the middle of all this chaos it's something that you know that I use to kind of decompress from the life and all the craziness that I deal with so. you don't play as much open world like I do like I'm super deep into the Far Cry's like I yeah. just downloaded the new I've Far I've played Cry. all those things and I'll play like of course like the Zeldas and mm-hmm. Nintendos and stuff just because they're such great games and I used to but yeah my it's again it's limited time so it's that twitch quick pick up yeah, exactly. and, and be able to that's, play that's my thing yeah if I had like as a kid all I like I never played any multiplayer games it was all single player and you know open world and super cool like my favorite games still are like Mario 64 and mm-hmm. uh, you know Zeldas and things like that but it's yeah it's timing it's tough to keep doing it well I appreciate you coming on and do this I'm gonna ask you one more one yeah, question off topic totally different but I can't oh. let you get out of this Uh-oh. my wife is the world's biggest Prince fan oh. Tell me some Prince stories. I know that you, you have a deep relationship. You've shown me texts that he used to send you. Tell me your what's your best Prince story Prince that you is had? awesome. So I met Prince. I got invited to a secret show he was doing in Hollywood down the street from my office at the Sayers Club. 100 room capacity. And at this point in my career, I've been to every concert, every show, seen every artist. Not really excited. And if I go, like I'm showing up late, like getting there and all that. Prince, I showed up as soon as the doors opened because I wanted to get right at the front and sit there. I knew, and by the way... What year is this? 
this would have been early, mid tw- like 2010, 2012, okay. 2013, so, so early 2010. The legend, like he's. Oh yeah, for sure. He's Prince. King, and he's from Minnesota. I'd never met him. And you're Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes all, all, all the sense in the world. So I got invited, couldn't bring anybody. Of course, couldn't have cameras or anything, so mm-hmm. went there. And I know he's going to be late, right? So the show's at 10, <laughs> doors at 8. I get there at 8. He goes on at midnight, so you know, which was early. I thought it would even be later <laughs> for him. So um, I ended up then writing a review of it for, for Billboard, and his manager reaches out to me at the time, um, and we connect, and she's like, yeah, Prince, loved your story, blah, blah, blah. And, yeah, sorry. The, yeah, exactly. Gary V live stuff happening. <laughs> yeah, uh, so uh, I get, you know, and... She, She's like, hey, why don't? Long story short, get invited to go on tour with him, and he he wants me to write a book on his tour, and I'm like, wait, what? And I'm busy at the time, like running Ski TV, about to launch, like still like dashes in its infancy, and start like brainstorming on this ideas, doing radio, but mm-hmm. like an opportunity to hit the road with Prince, and it was he was doing intimate shows up and down the West Coast. I actually brought Aaron to a show in Seattle. Nice. Uh, shout to him, uh, and I was hooking up all the all the homies just because it was incredible. Because of that list you built. Yeah, exactly. But like House of Blues style venue. So so I mean, the guy could sell out stadium. He's doing Super Bowl half times. Now he's doing five hundred person venues and stuff. So it's just the most incredible show. He's doing two shows a night, and I wanted to watch every single one of them. When you go on a tour on the road, typically with an artist, it's the same show every single mm-hmm. night. You've seen one. You've seen every other city. Prince, it was a different show. He'd do two shows a night. Each show, every night was different. So you'd want to see both of them. One night he'd come out looking like Jimi Hendrix, just playing straight guitar. The other night he's strictly funk and R and B. Like it was, it was incredible. So being on the road with him and just and by the way, like I knew the book would never come out because I know how he operates. It's like, yeah, we just need like a twenty million dollar advance, and it was on him and his band on their tour. And at the time, like, look, he wasn't as hot as that, so sure. people aren't really spending that on book publishing advances. So I was like, oh, we'll sure. see if we can make it happen. And that's kind of the world that Prince lives in. He lives in Prince world, but like, so. hey, that's how the Princeology got the number one album, right? Yeah. It, was, it, was, it was tied to ticket Genius. sales. I went to well, that, he's crazy. I went to that <laughs> concert because I had bought the album and yeah. I listened to it. My wife, I've seen him probably ten times. And my wife and I went in and I bought my ticket. I walk in, it was in Seattle, it was Key Arena. Yeah. And they gave me a CD and I'm like, what's the CD? What's the deal with this? I, I have the CD. And yeah. they're like, yeah, it comes with your ticket. It's awesome. So I'm like, that's how you get to number one. For sure. Just tying it so to sales. He, it's just always, genius. he was always ahead of those things. And I remember one of the craziest things on the tour is he didn't like a sound guy. He kept getting into it with him. So he ends up firing it and ends up being his own sound guy, which being an artist, like, that's not something that you really do. That's like filming a TV show and being the camera person and director too. So the dude on stage at the concert, I'm like, what What the hell is going on? What's he going to do? It's not like, of course he like gets his stuff set up, but in the middle of the show, he'll walk over to the side booth. He has it like, he sets it up special on the side of the stage and walks over and starts doing his levels and mixing while he's playing. So I'm like, what the hell is this dude? Like, I've never seen that. I'll never see that again. It was just incredible. So he was his own, Everything. And he loves sports, right? Like he loves Minnesota teams. So I remember I'd be like trying to get him to come to some of the Vikings games early on, and he'd be like on a beach watching it, and you know he had a place down in the the Caribbean. So I heard he had a screen on TV, like people would read lyrics from, but he would actually be playing the Twins game. Or the, or the or that's the probably true. He did. He, he like does have a screen to lead lyrics, side. but if it was Minnesota sports, yeah, and he loves yeah. basketball, loved the Lynx. So, like one of the, the most epic moments, I wasn't there, but that everybody tells me from in the Timberwolves organization is when the Lynx won the the championship. Did private concert for like forty people there at Paisley Park. Just went all night. And they're like it's the most incredible awesome. thing ever. So, he was awesome. He was the great. I mean, the greatest with that, greatest musician from so many things. Greatest guitar player I've ever seen. Greatest musician. Great like. 
just too too smart, like right, like yeah. too too good for you know people don't appreciate it. Yeah, no, uh, we will forever. Yeah, so. for sure. Thank you for Thank coming. Thank you, out. sir. This means yes. a lot to me. So I'm gonna appreciate a you. Goodie bag this. now. Let's yeah, go no, see what I you got go, around go here. Go steal some games. So. <laughs> cool. Thanks for coming out. Triple clicks.